Hi, listeners. This is your Patreon update for this week. This week on Pillar Talk, we are going to be talking about how many times you have to receive communion in order to receive an entire Jesus. Okay. Well, you know, great. That's, That's high content right there. It is. High content. It also might be that we start that and uh, decide that that's not a question that we want to talk about and talk about something different. Listeners, you will have to subscribe to the Patreon to find out. That's true. For our episodes this week, we have Paige and Elizabeth with us who are under complaint in well, we're under complaint in Mississippi and have now gone through that process. And so we get to hear as much about that process as they can share. Uh, and it's a really interesting companion story to Drew's story. Ooh. I mean, I have I was not there for that, listeners, so I have to listen to it as well. Yeah, you get to find out as well. That'll be good. We can add that to the list of content when you guys talk about how many pieces of Jesus make up a Jesus. Well... i'm just letting her go i'm like yeah no well well is right joe (laughs) and now on to the show (laughs) one two five nine robin preacher servant leader rector reverend deacon elder what the hell Listeners, this week on the podcast, we have Paige and Elizabeth with us to talk about their process in Mississippi uh, being under complaint after doing a same gender wedding, and also about their ministry and what brought them to this place and where they are now. So Paige and Elizabeth, welcome. We're so glad to be here. Thanks, Joe. Yeah. Well, each of you give me just a quick update on uh, where who you are, what, what you're doing right now with your life, and uh, any other information you want to share. Sure. I am Reverend Elizabeth Davidson. I am a deacon in the United Methodist Church here in Mississippi. I was born and raised here um, after going away to school, got to come back. So I've been back for almost 10 years now and have served as an associate in congregational ministry. And right now I am serving in extension ministry as the executive director of Faith in Women, which you can check out at faithinwomen.org if you want to learn more uh, about our work doing reproductive health rights and justice from a faith perspective. Wow. Did not know that that was like what your job is right now. And that is so cool. (laughs) Yeah, super casual. I started it about three weeks before the Dobbs decision. So it has been a ride. (laughs) Oh, yikes, yikes, yikes. Uh, Well, thank you for your work. Paige, tell us about you. Hi, I am Paige Wayne Presley. I am an elder in the United Methodist Church. I grew up in South Alabama and met my husband in seminary. He's a Mississippi boy, also clergy. So we moved to Mississippi. I'm a member of the Mississippi Annual Conference. So is he. But currently, we are serving in the Virginia Conference. We moved to Southwest Virginia this summer at the end of June. And I, as an elder, being under suspension means that I don't have a job related to my ministry. I don't have a job at all right now. I am taking care of my three-year-old daughter and helping her and our family through this transition, which has actually been a huge gift. I think she really needed a lot of presence in the midst of this change and following everything that happened in the spring. So I've, I've been grateful for that. 
I'm grateful for that for you too. We just talked with Drew as he was reflecting on his whole complaint process. And he had mentioned that his oldest child doesn't want to get confirmed because of the process. And it's just heartbreaking. It would, And Drew would say it very matter of factly, but like I was dying on the inside. And so knowing that you have this time to be with your daughter and like, kind of work through, I mean, the level of perception is probably different, but being able to care for your family in this kind of intentional way is is a powerful gift in the midst of a crappy situation, if I can say that. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it's definitely been grace for us. Mm, mm, Good pastor word. (laughs) I I try to identify the times in life where I am speaking Christianese to non-Christian people. (laughs) But for the most part, our podcast is Christian people, so we all get it. <laughs> um, so let's start off by talking about, and whoever wants to go first, what got you into ministry in the first place? What led you to seminary? What led you to ordination? And what led you to your track in ordination? Okay, uh, I will go. This is Elizabeth. So I, like just about every pastor I know, um, did not feel a call to ministry or did not think I was called to vocational ministry and resisted that (laughs) when I did sort of start to receive that call. Um, I do. It's funny. I, my earliest memory of ever even thinking about ministry though, was I was about seven years old, uh, my home church and our senior pastor who I adored, Sam Morris, who has since passed on, but just Mm -hmm. was an incredible human being. He was preaching. And I remember thinking, you know, I, I wouldn't mind uh, having a job where I get to talk about God for an hour on Sundays and then I could go play with my friends the rest of the week. That seems, <laughs> I can do that. That's what we do. I, I really, that, that seemed like a sweet gig, you know? And so I quickly, as I got older, learned that's not quite the job description. <laughs> um, so kind of let that go um, and, and thought about nursing and thought about law and, um, realized as I was kind of discerning those things that the sort of common denominator was a sense of um, wanting to be a, a, in a caring role and wanting mm-hmm. to be with people and be a support for people in vulnerable situations and in crisis. Um, and so that led me to study social work at Baylor University. Um, and Baylor has, I, I have my... Um, my beef for sure with a lot about my alma mater, but the school of social work is spectacular. And one of the really the pillars of that program is what they call the ethical integration of faith and practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And this idea of helping students really figure out what their faith story and journey is and how that informs um, their calling as a social worker and the ways that they bring, that you can authentically bring your faith without forcing that on anyone else, but also honoring that um, your clients and the folks that you're working with are going to have their own spirituality, faith of some kind, and how do we honor that in them um, and connect them. And so through that program, and as I was learning about the practical ways to make an impact in the world, I was doing a lot of soul searching and realizing that for me, my faith as a Christian and particularly being raised in the Wesleyan tradition and the idea of the social principles and things like that were really informing why I wanted to do social work, Mm. but I didn't feel like I had um, the language or the education to really be able to articulate that well. And so initially I was just going to do, I decided to do a dual degree program. Um, And I went to Duke for seminary and UNC Chapel Hill for my master's in social work. And I thought, 
well, I'll just, I'll learn all of the Jesus y stuff so I can talk about it, but I'm going to be a social worker. Obviously, that did not, <laughs> that is not what happened um, over the course of my time there and getting to do field placements and various things. I discerned a, a, a call to vocational ministry and to ordination. And I, um, really struggled. I don't know if this is the moment, I guess, to talk about my ordination process. Is that sure? So I, I discerned a call to ministry and I really struggled. I, I immediately knew if I was going to be in ministry, I was going to be a deacon. I, I remember reading in the book of discipline about the role of deacon and the orders and thinking like, Oh, it's just an ordained social worker <laughs> in a lot of ways. There's a lot of those <laughs> values, a lot of those same values and, and that emphasis on connecting the church and the world and helping people live out their faith in a very sort of hands-on way and, and all of that good stuff. But I, it's funny cause I, was in a field placement uh, during my time at Duke. And the church there was wonderful and was had, had a lot of interns and were very good about helping uh, prepare for the commissioning and ordination process. And they set up a series of sort of mock interviews for me to help me practice. That's amazing. Yes, they were, they were so wonderful. But this sweet woman almost accidentally talked me out of getting ordained <laughs> because I remember sitting in a coffee shop and we're having a great conversation. And she asked me, so what is it that you can do as an ordained deacon, as an ordained clergy person that you feel like you can't do as a lay person? Essentially, why, why go through this process? What is it that God is calling to you specific to ordination that you can't do just as a lay person, as a social worker who is a Christian? And I had to really wrestle with that because the answer was really not nothing, not much. You know, I, I feel that I would be doing what I'm called to do with or without the backing of uh, of the, the official church position. And so I really wrestled um, with whether or not to be ordained. And where I ultimately landed was that so many people that I know and loved have been so harmed by the church and been so marginalized by the church. And I thought that given some of the pain that has happened, that perhaps it would be healing for folks to hear the things that I believe to be true, that I believe that, that I have been uh, ministered to and told by God about the inherent worth of all people, about justice, about um, the ways that we are called to live out our faith in very hands-on practical ways. Um, but I felt that it might be healing for folks, particularly those who've been hurt by the church, to hear some of those things from someone with reverence in front of their name. Mm. And mm. that that has certainly been the case. Um, and that's been hugely affirming um, in my ministry. But it, it definitely it was a it was a wrestling for sure. Um, but it has it has worked out and I have been in ministry now. I was commissioned in 2015. So I have and ordained in I think 2018. So um, it's it's been a, a good ride. It's been a wild ride, but a good one. So were you in Chapel Hill in like 20, I guess starting in 2012? Starting 2011. We must have just missed each other. I mean, like not that we would have been in the same circles, but I graduated from Carolina in 2011 and then worked at a planetarium for four years after that. So we were in the same areas. The whole time. Yeah. Did you know Sarah Bellis? I don't Did know you? Sarah Bellis, but I know Sarah okay. Beth Panel. I love Sarah Beth Panel. Yay. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> Small yeah. world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's such a, a fun intersection. Yeah. Paige, tell us your story. You don't have to go as long as Elizabeth did if you don't want to. <laughs> My story 
has some contradictions and some some tensions in it that I think really helped make me who I am. I come from a family that is not particularly religious, hmm. barely religious at all. In fact, my mom started taking us to a United Methodist Church when I was in middle school. And we attended through middle school and high school for me. She kept attending a little while after that, but sort of dropped off as my brother and I got older. So my own story is one of finding belonging and community and mentorship in the church. When I was this vulnerable kid whose family was going through so much Mm -hmm. at home and I was not a remotely cool kid Um, (laughs) and I grew up in a small town and as a, a questioner and a critical thinker and a reader, someone who wrestles with a, a lot of feelings and ideas in the Deep South, in this very evangelical context, mm. I was struggling to make sense of everything. And faith didn't come naturally to me. Mm. At the same time, I had this deep, deep longing to connect to something bigger than me, to a community, but not just a community. I, I remember wanting so badly for God to be real to me. Mm. And I stayed involved with my youth group. I was very involved with my campus ministry, the Wesley Foundation in college. And in that space, I learned that there was a way to be Christian that wasn't sort of a a rigid evangelicalism. There was a way to be a person of of faith and still be critical and questioning. I didn't have to turn to sort of a cold rationalism. I learned that I could be someone who cared about justice and oppression and marginalization, I learned those words probably for the first time (laughs) in a religious context. And finding all of that out, finding that in this United Methodist community, in a lot of ways, saved my life, really. And certainly changed who I was for the better and gave me a sense of family and community and belonging. And so as I started to discern a sense of calling, it really came out of this longing to hold that kind of space for Mm. other people who needed it, to hold space for people who longed for connection to God, who longed for connection to other people, to create space where we could be transformed by God into people who worked toward justice and who cared for and were in relationship with the vulnerable and who trusted God with our own vulnerability. So I, I came into this with a a deep sense of connection to sacrament, to the God who was broken for us and is with us in our brokenness and a deep sense of gratitude for a God who 
had been with me and continues to be with me in my brokenness. And so it's been my privilege to regularly have had opportunities to be in ministry with people who are in vulnerable places, who are struggling or who are at the edges of things. I have some training in spiritual direction and I, yeah, I love it. Um, The idea that God is active among us and that I get to be someone's partner on their journey. I told a friend on a hike this weekend that spiritual direction is really just someone walking on the path with you and every once in a while saying, hey, stop, look, do you see that? Isn't it beautiful? I like that. So I love that I get to do that. It's been a a huge gift in my life. Oh, I I love so much of what you just said. I, and I love that idea of spiritual direction. So uh, two basic questions. Where'd you go to undergrad? I went to undergrad at Troy University in mm. Troy, Alabama. Nice. And where'd you go to seminary? I went to seminary at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. So loved Atlanta. Why there? I applied to several seminaries. I applied to Duke. That had actually been my top choice. It was where I assumed I was going to go. But my experience with the admissions folks at Candler was just incredible. They were so caring and so pastoral and so present. I had several close friends who were already in seminary at Candler. Um, My church and my Wesley Foundation just sent a whole bunch of us into ministry in that generation. It was really interesting. So I I had people there. The admissions folks were incredible. They gave me a scholarship that covered all the things. Wow. And I really thought that I was probably going to end up in some kind of urban ministry, nonprofit work. And Atlanta seemed like a really good place to pursue that. Yeah. Paige, I'm going to ask you to do what we ask all deacons to do. Why be an elder? Why, what about that other than sacrament? Why be an elder? Sacrament was a really big part of it for me. My college ministry, which was a place that was really key in my formation of spiritual identity, of vocation, had a weekly meal that we called Common Meal. Mm. And so we met once a week. And everyone sat around tables and churches brought dinner, not that different from what every campus ministry does. But ours also included communion. So we would sit and have salad or appetizer or something like that. And then we would do the first part of communion. And every table would pass the bread around that had been blessed. And we would give each other pieces of bread. And then after the meal, before dessert, we would do the same thing with the cup. And... I just developed this sense of community and spirituality, of hospitality and relationship building that was really grounded in that practice of sacrament. And early on, even though I felt very connected to all of the things that deacons stand for and do, I knew that my calling was to do those things as an elder, as someone who could stand and break bread and hold up the cup 
and tell people that God is really present with us right here, right now, in the brokenness and in the community. Mm. Oh, yeah, every t- this is what happens to me. Every time I talk to deacons and elders about their ministry, a deacon talks and I'm like, yes, I'm called to be a deacon. I'm going to go be out in the world. And then an elder's like, but at the table. And I'm like, shoot, I'm going to be an elder. But, you know, <laughs> And like these distinctions were made up in a boardroom of yes. people who weren't us. So like, whichever. But um, I thank you both for sharing those like specific things that called you to the ministries as you as you are embodying them. You didn't see it, but I was internally sobbing the whole time. This was beautiful. Thank you. So let's talk about, we. I think for both of your stories, we've gotten you through ordination. Let's talk about how y'all met and the ministry that you had together. Elizabeth, how did we meet? <laughs> um, Emily, a mutual friend. When I was, so I um, had the, the very unique and kind of beautiful experience of getting to come back to the church where I grew up that raised me and where I was baptized and confirmed and all of that good stuff. Um, and I served briefly, I did missions and outreach and then shifted to doing children and family ministries for about three, three and a half years. Um, and, uh, there was, <laughs> there was a season where there were some renovations happening at the church It's a very old, it's like a, a, you know, couple hundred year old congregation and, uh, has been there for a long, long time. So that old building needed a little bit of love. And during that period we all got moved down to the gym for our offices. So it was one big, <laughs> one big office. Uh, and during that period, Paige, I think, was in town for uh, some meeting at the conference office and came to visit her friend who was uh, the associate pastor with me. And because we're all in there together, we got to visiting. And that's the first time I remember us meeting. And then just over over the, the years, we got... Uh, closer and became friends. And I met her husband, Lance. And um, when I would say when we got really, really close, I actually I went through a divorce in um, 2018. And, and, you know, a difficult time kind of leading up to that. And uh, Paige and I were in a a kind of a a clergy group, uh, an online clergy group, and I had just shared very briefly, hey, got some hard things going on, can you be praying for me and Paige showed up at my door um, with some baked goods and we just sat on my front steps and she let me cry and just was a great, uh, friend in that. And Lance, her husband kind of just, uh, decided that I was theirs and that they were not going to let me go through this by myself. And so I spent a lot of time at their house. Um, and it was really sweet. I, I'm, uh, a allergic to gluten and so they would keep like gluten-free pasta at the house so I could come have dinner when I just didn't feel up to cooking and um so that I would say that's when we got to be what we now refer to as family friends who are really family I love it and since then have been going vacations together and all kind of good stuff so it's we have known each other gosh I don't even remember when that was that we met at Galloway but it's most of my time back home I think I think you were probably still pretty new there. I know you weren't ordained yet. Oh, yeah, I was definitely not ordained yet. Um, but so, yeah, I think it was yeah my first or second year back that we met. And then, like I said, got closer over the next few years. And particularly when I was going through a hard time, Paige and Lance were just godsend. Well, it's probably terrible to say, but your divorce is one of the best things that ever happened to me. <laughs> 
it, it, you know, it all worked out for me too. I have a wonderful husband now, so it all worked out for me too. But it was, yeah, it's just, we just really kind of became soul sisters and Paige went to work at the Center for Ministry at Millsaps in what year was that page that you? 2016, I think. Mm, okay. And, um, and then in 2019, um, she actually wrote a grant with Lily for a program called Thriving in Ministry. And I applied for the director role for that and um, was able to make that transition. So in January 2019, I started working with Paige and a couple other wonderful folks at the Center for Ministry and did both the directing of that grant program, but also Paige and I became the co-directors of the Wesley Connection or Wesley Foundation, but they call it the Wesley Connection and Millsaps. Um, so that, and that's where we met um, our, our students that became uh, the couple that we did the wedding for and a lot of other really incredible young people. In fact, I, uh, um, we live still, my husband and I still live in the neighborhood where Millsaps is and just uh, on Friday night ran into one of our former students um, at a, a block party event and got to catch up with him and meet his sweet dog. So, <laughs> uh-huh. oh, I miss our neighborhood and I miss our students so much. I, that was one of the most amazing, beautiful, terrifying, fun ministry context I can imagine ever having. What did ministry look like in that setting? What were what type of work were you doing? Who were you working with in addition to students? Like what was that whole setting like? And how long were y'all working there together? I was there from 2016 through the spring of 2021. Okay. And Elizabeth started in January of 2019. Was that it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I left in, I left last June. So 2022. Gotcha. So we overlapped two years. Two um, and a half. It feels like so much longer. It does. It was, I feel like we, it's one of those seasons where there was a lot of life. And of course that was the pandemic hit in the midst of that too, which aged us all about 30 years. So yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, it was, it, and it feels like, I think that's probably part of why it does feel so much longer because we had a whole in-person season and, and group and then the pandemic hit and we had um, folks that we were only connecting with online and trying to maintain that community, but also mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to reach the new students that we had not previously yes. met and, um, and then having kids coming back and navigating all of that. And uh, for a while there, it was sort of split. We had some that stayed virtual and some that came back mm-hmm. and, person and so it was it was a wild ride but it was it was really wonderful and so when we were able to be in person we did um, a lot of we did weekly in-person lunches where we would get together somebody in the community a local church would sponsor a lunch and um, usually some kind of homemade something so the kids could enjoy uh, the students I'm we're, we're bad about telling our kids or our babies and I realized I'm not old enough for them to actually be my babies, but they're my babies. (laughs) No, we very much had a vibe of I was mom and Elizabeth was the cool aunt. That was, that was sort of our um, our set roles, our dynamic. That's a really good way to put it. Um, It's like you talk for a living. I do. I do. I know. Um, 
we we had a really I think one of my favorite things that we did was before the pandemic hit we had a weekly coffee hour mm. and one of our our other family members a friend who is also faculty at Millsaps helped us brainstorm this idea but in the student gathering space where they just sort of socialize near the cafeteria we would um come once a week and we would set up free coffee and free tea at a table for people to come by and get. But we also had this huge array of what we called de-stressing activities. So people could sit and color. They could sit and play with beads and make bracelets. They could do stickers. Yeah, Legos. There were Legos. There was always some kind of... Play-Doh, yeah, so, some kind of like fun set of stuff for people to do. And so as people came to chat with us or drink their coffee and played with these things, they would also be sitting side by side and chat with each other. And it became this really beautiful gathering space for people who had all kinds of different degrees of relationship to the religious nature of the ministry. It gave us a, a way to to be in relationship with so many students and to see the way they were with each other and to hold space just to chat about daily life and what was going on. It was really fun. And that's how a lot, that's how we first met or first really bonded with so many of our students that ended up becoming our regulars and our mm-hmm. leaders. And so often, sometimes some folks just came to coffee hour and that was, that that's was it. all they wanted. And that's wonderful. Um, but we had many others that after kind of coming to coffee hour and experiencing mm-hmm. that would come to the lunches where we would do kind of a, yes. you know, a devotion sort of short Bible study and lunch or would come to some of our other events. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it, it just it was yeah, it was a really wonderful season. And then, of course, you know, when the pandemic hit, we had to go all virtual. And so we were able to maintain some of that. We did. um a lot of the the games like Quiplash and you know like some of those sort of online games and we would have sort of hangouts and then once we were allowed back on campus we did sort of an outdoor distanced uh, grab a coffee and and gave folks a little happy to take with them but um, it, yeah it's hard to hard to recreate that exact feeling but those coffee hours were huge and I will say too that was a big draw but also Paige having been there before I was. Um, had already done a good bit of groundwork too on building relationships with students and particularly some of the kids that were more vulnerable or that um, felt marginalized or, or had been harmed by the church. Um, and a lot of a lot of queer students, trans students um, ha- had already built, by the time I got there, had already known Paige to be a safe and trustworthy person and someone mm-hmm. that they could talk to and and be very honest with and ask questions and get support and and all of that good stuff and so I think her having had that time and just being who she is to build up that um, gave me a certain amount of credibility when I came in and she said this is a good person for you to talk to too <laughs> um, yeah. and so that and um, our, our friend Katie who was actually I, I grew up within the church was my seminary roommate and is now an Episcopal priest in Meridian um, was the staff director or staff advisor for the pride group um, and Katie also kind of gave us her seal of approval 
with several of the students. So we ended up with a lot of the pride group coming to things, whether it was just coffee hour or or becoming our, our leaders, our, our co-presidents were also at one point, I think, actually Maddie, one of the members of the couple yes. from the wedding for um, at one point, they were the co-director of Wesley or co-president of Wesley and president of the pride group. So wow. uh, there that's was certainly that, more diagram had a lot of overlap. It, it was, was it was basically a circle. Yeah. There were more students that came. And of course, we were delighted by that, too. But for whatever reason, we we ended up with a lot of the kids that were in the pride group. And that was a lot of fun for us because we got to have some really great conversations. Yes. And I would say I it may sound strange to have gone from children's ministry to college ministry, but what I loved about children's ministry are the same things I love about college ministry, which is that like there's not a lot of filter. They're not afraid to ask questions. I love the questions that they're seeing and um it's it's just it was a wonder it was so such a wonderful experience. Um certainly hard and heartbreaking at times and um and necessitated a lot of really difficult conversations i mean when the traditional plan passed at Mm -hmm. general conference uh in 2019 i guess that was yeah um you know i think that i think it came out either monday or tuesday morning and so i remember being at our our lunch Mm -hmm. on our lunches on tuesdays and having to explain to the students what happened and what that means um and just one in particular just holding one of our girls as she just sobbed and you know one of the things that really struck me about that was she said you know it's not me I'm not I'm not upset because of me because I know my community has me I'm I'm thinking about my parents and that they're gonna go and sit in pews and hear from people that are going to tell them not to love me, not to support me, that I'm sinful. And I had not, that was not a perspective I had really thought about as much, but it was that she, she was devastated, not just because she didn't feel welcome in a church because she felt like she had formed this faith community that really was feeding her, but that she knew that if her parents stayed in churches that told them, that she was a sinner or all these things um, that that was going to do a lot of harm. And so it just, yeah, it was really heartbreaking. And, and we ended up having a lot of, of conversations around that particular decision, but also just around their experiences in a variety of traditions. And um, yeah, it was, it, it was hard, but it was good work. Mm. I remember early on before Elizabeth got there, we hadn't necessarily planned for me to do as much work with the students as I wound up doing. I came in as associate chaplain and director of the center for ministry, very much intended to primarily be in sort of the church relations work of the chaplain's office. Ah, okay. Um, working with clergy, doing spiritual formation, doing professional development and also doing some work on campus, right? Sort of assisting the the position that's now the dean of the chapel there. At the time it was just called chaplain. But it it turned out that the students and I just loved each other a lot. We, mm. just, we just really loved each other. I knew I would immediately. Like Elizabeth, I love the way 
college students say all the things, have all the questions, and still are there to have fun. It's a, it's a great group of folks to work with. But I have in my mind the image of this one particular student. So Maddie, who is a member of the couple, and this was before they knew Miles, their now um, spouse, was a first-year student, and I met them on the first day as they moved in, although they don't remember that. Um, I ate lunch with them, and they don't remember it. <laughs> but, of course, a couple of weeks in, I saw them and decided to check in on them. We had a little conversation, and they started coming by my office with all of the questions that some of their new classes were bringing up. Um, and they are just one of the most deeply theological people I have ever encountered, such a deep thinker and a deep feeler, really incredible. And so I got to do this thing that is what pastors dream of doing in ministry, which is to come alongside someone who's really digging in and really wrestling with their faith, really wanting to put it in conversation with the rest of their life and with the rest of the world. And as Maddie and I built this relationship, of course, their friends kind of came along for the ride. And I remember one student in particular who was dating one of Maddie's friends. And they were just, understandably, incredibly weary of me as this religious authority figure. And I had these magnets on my giant metallic desk from, I don't know, 100 years ago that was so heavy, it just never got moved out of the office, right? Everyone just kept using this desk because, I don't know, I don't know that you could move it. So I got all of these magnets, the little poetry magnets, to make poems and sentences. And the students would sit there and they would make poems and sort of gradually open up to me. And day by day, week by week, this one student literally edged physically closer. They started off standing out in the hallway, would not come into the office, would not lean on the door jam. They would stand there and silently wait until the person they were dating and their friends were ready to go. And as weeks passed, they, they eased closer and closer, and then they would be standing in the doorway and then they would be sitting on the floor and then they would be playing with the magnets and still just not saying much hmm. until finally the day came when, when they were coming into my office and pouring their heart out about what it was like to be a trans person in the South and how they were experiencing the church and how they had experienced the church. And, and they just went from this place of, not thinking they could have anything to do with it, not wanting to have anything to do with it, to being one of our most faithful student leaders. Wow. To, to being someone who they and the person they were dating, who is now their fiance, becoming consistent attenders and supporters at my husband's church, which was the first reconciling church in Mississippi. And wow. to, to be able to know people of that caliber, yeah. People who are so brave, just uh, bravery beyond what I can imagine myself having, bravery to know who they are, to be who they are, the kind of vulnerability and bravery it takes to come back into a religious setting, 
a Christian setting and reclaim faith on your own terms, it is just one of the greatest privileges of my life and my pastoral ministry to have come alongside students like them in their journey. And so knowing that these were the, the kids, they're, they're, they're our kids, um, but these young adults, knowing what these young adults had faced and how they had been literally traumatized by religion and by the church, having walked with them through those spaces of deep pain, through those spaces of spiritual transformation and to some degree healing. Doing all of that and then seeing our church reject them and hurt them and demean and dehumanize them and tell them in indirect, indirect ways that they are not holy and they are not welcome. They are not full members of the body of Christ. They do not deserve the fullness of the church's ministry or of my ministry as a pastor. It was a gut punch. It was heart-wrenching. It is nauseating. It, it just, it's tragic. Yeah. Oh, boy, it really sounds like both of you are like social justice warriors, fake Christians who are forcing the gay agenda on people. <laughs> you got it. You pegged us. <laughs> what the hell is a pastor is a part of the disruptive disciples podcast network our theme song is written by joe schoenwolf performed by joe schoenwolf ian oriola and paul oriola and produced by paul oriola rate review and subscribe to us in the podcasting app of your choice and find us across the social internet at WTHIAP. Visit us at WTHIAP.com to get connected to our Patreon, merch, playlist, and more. A special thanks to our Patreon subscribers, Nick, Justin, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Tara, Rachel, Abby, Peter, the Reverends Langenstein, Annalise, and Ian. Your money makes the show happen. Yes, it does. Thanks for listening, friends, and be there for each other.